when I when I when I look at this from a, a memetics perspective, the ideology has evolved to fit all of these niches perfectly, and so it's this new phenomenon where it's not like a traditional cult where there's one kind of leader. It's not like a traditional religion where it's offering a clear idea of salvation, though there is hidden in it this idea of salvation where if you just uh, take the medicine, so to speak, if you if you go down this this role of transis transition, all of your problems are going to get solved. So it shares a lot of elements with traditional cults and traditional religions. And at the same time, I, I really feel that this is a new phenomenon and, and it shares uh, it, and it's got characteristics that we've never seen before all combined into, into one uh, social phenomenon. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Well, today I'm joined by a very interesting guest by the name of Alan Michael, who's reached out to me about a unique intersection of issues. As you know, on this podcast, I like to talk about things that are on the fringe and taboo. I'm very interested in the subject of psychedelics and detransition, for example. And if you're interested in the intersection of those two issues, I would recommend you check out my past episodes with Laura Becker and Torin Danowski. Well, Bridging from there, today we have an ROGD parent that is a parent of a child with rapid onset gender dysphoria who has also found some life-changing experiences through psychedelics. Now, of course, I have to say this up front, none of this should be construed as medical advice or therapeutic advice. I do not recommend that people engage in uh, illegal activities, but that said, as uh, a podcast on the topic of psychology, there are few things that um, spark awareness of one's own psyche in quite the profound way that psychedelics do. So I think that people's stories of psychedelic experiences are very much worth listening to for anyone who's interested in the mind, um, body, and spirit. So today, Alan's going to share with us about the unique challenges that he's had in parenting a child with rapid onset gender dysphoria and how his experiences with psychedelics have uh, given him insight and tools into how can he be there for his family. Alan's background is pretty interesting in some other ways too. He has escaped a cult. Um, he has a background both in spirituality and science and technology, holding a Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering, as well as a Master's of Divinity. Plus, he's a father of five. So <laughs> lots of interesting experience to draw from here. And I'm so excited that someone with such a unique story to share has reached out to me about uh, coming on the podcast. As you can imagine, for the sake of protecting uh, his privacy and that of his family, this is an audio-only episode. So if you're watching on YouTube, this is all it's going to be audio. You might as well switch to a podcast listening app if that's your preference, but do this however you want. Anyway, Alan, it's great to have you. Thanks for joining me today. 
My pleasure. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, so tell me about what inspired you to reach out to me with your story. Well, uh, like many parents who have uh, children that have gotten involved with the um, uh, gender ideology, um, you know, it's been a it's been a really huge struggle uh, trying to help her navigate and trying to and and then at the same time trying to navigate myself and also you know for my wife as well trying to navigate uh, the landscape and it's it's like all of a sudden we're in this this crazy dystopia where we can't trust professionals uh, we we can't um, you know not not that we should have ever felt safe just letting our kids roam free on the internet but now it's even worse because you know it's just like uh, you know our daughter is kind of like a, a bug going to a bug light where she's going to want to look up everything about gender and you know all of the information that's out there is so skewed so you know it's it, it's it's a very difficult challenging time as a parent and um trying to navigate that you know i've i've had to really look inwardly and say how can i maintain my inner peace in the most profound way possible so that i can be available as a parent and um thankfully the tools that i have at my disposal are ones that i've used in other parts of my life i as you mentioned i was involved with a cult unfortunately i was in a cult for about uh 12 years and um, I suffered uh, complex post-traumatic stress disorder from my time there. It was extremely abusive. Um, you know, imagine getting screamed at multiple times a week for 12 years and watching other people get abused regularly. It, you know, it's uh, devastating to one's psyche. So, you know, in order to find healing from post-traumatic stress disorder, I found some local therapists who work with psychedelics and I was able to um, go on what you know what we call a psychedelic therapy session it's called a journey right so I've been on a few psychedelic journeys therapeutic journeys where um, you know we've, we've done one with cannabis one with MDMA one with MDMA and psilocybin and all of those journeys together kind of have resulted in a significant recovery from post-traumatic stress disorder. I wouldn't say that I'm completely healed. There's still lingering effects that I deal with. Um, and, but, but it's been by and large, almost a complete healing. And also the other major tool that I've had to leverage over the years is, is mindfulness and meditation. So that's a very big part of my daily, uh, diet. And it's, it's, it's a big part of how I've, you know, try to try to maintain my balance while navigating these really rough parenting waters. You talk about achieving almost complete healing from a few sessions of psychedelic assisted therapy. And I think for people who are new to hearing things like this, it sounds so extreme, so you know, too good to be true. And established mental health professionals in the field who aren't familiar or are skeptical, understandably, um, toward these novel and as of yet illegal um, practices would typically say that the, the type of complex PTSD you describe could take years of therapy. Uh, people are in different camps. Some people swear by, you know, techniques like EMDR, for example. But um, you described this uh, deep 
level of psychological abuse that was your entire life, your entire community. And I'm sure we could do a whole episode just on the subject of of leaving that cult, but there's a lot of intersecting ideas here. So let's just kind of start with that. I mean, when you say that a few psychedelic assisted therapy sessions helped you so drastically with your complex PTSD uh, what do you attribute yeah, that to? I mean, this, How the do you psychedelic experience is so profound. And um, I, I look at it in a few different ways, like on a, on a brain level, you know, I, I think, let me, let me, let me paint a little bit of a picture because you talked about traditional therapy and I tried traditional therapy. I tried, I tried it with multiple therapists and um, because I, I really hit a, a rock bottom kind of place, right? Like I couldn't even interact with my family anymore because I would get triggered so easily. And the slightest thing would have me up in the bedroom shaking in a corner so that I wouldn't hurt my kids, you know, because I, I could get so explosive. And, um, you know, like, so, so for example, if, if one of my kids dropped something or broke a glass, like I would just erupt and it was cr- so disproportionate to what was going on. And I knew that this, this was going to be really damaging to them. So I had to isolate myself from my family. And um, so that's kind of the level of, of, of uh, triggering that we're talking about. And so I tried therapy, you know, I tried talk therapy, I tried EMDR, and all of, all of it was so re-triggering when I would think about the trauma and the incidents that I had been through, um, the kind of abuse that I had been through, that I couldn't, um, I couldn't manage it. Like I was, I was at a point where I was going to lose my job because I, it, it was like either do the therapy or stay in your job because it was so emotionally difficult. And so I was desperate, right? And so I had been listening to Sam Harris quite a bit. He's a huge proponent of mindfulness meditation and also psychedelics. And I said, you know, I'm going to try, uh, I'm going to try both of these things. So I found that mindfulness gave me a, a, a kind of a space that I could get some momentary relief and we'll talk more about mindfulness hope hope hopefully we can talk more about mindfulness in this podcast but then i said you know i want to try some psilocybin which is uh you know another another that's the scientific name for magic mushrooms um so or the chemical that's in magic mushrooms that uh, actually breaks down to psilocin which is the psychoactive component but anyway i said i'm going to try microdosing psilocybin so i tried uh microdosing a tenth of a gram of psilocybin, which is very small amount. And I uh, felt fine. I had a normal day at work. I got home, sat down for dinner. Normally I would have just isolated myself, but I said, I'm going to try to be with my family. Sat down for dinner and immediately one of my kids spilled a glass, shattered it all over the table. Normally just the noise, the sound of that glass shattering would have been enough to trigger me, but it was like nothing happened. It was like, I can deal with this. This is almost a miracle. And I sat and had dinner with my family for the first time in weeks. And it was like, this is incredible. Then I found some therapists that do full-on therapy sessions. And, you know, so I think we can, we can talk about cannabis a little bit, but I'd rather focus on MDMA because it's a much more powerful uh, medicine for uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. So I'll talk about my first MDMA session where, you know, I, as soon as the medicine came on, I started remembering things about 
the traumatic experiences that happened to me that I, I hadn't thought about in years. I couldn't remember them. And so I started, it triggered uh, or, or facilitated my memory to open up. And because the MDMA quiets the, the, the fight and flight, fight or flight mechanism of your brain, um, it wasn't scary to talk about anymore. And so I just poured out the years of this trauma. And then, um, you know, my therapist had asked me to bring some things from that, that trigger me things that would normally have triggered me. And, and so I brought some of those objects and I, I, you know, maybe I'll pause in a minute to let you speak and ask some questions. But through that journey, um, I was able to essentially let go of the, and, and uh, let go and, and not just let go, but also, um, reconcile and and process so many of the things that had happened to me that were so frightening and so uh painful that i I couldn't do it before so that you know i think it's it it, with mdma at least it's quieting down that default or the fight or flight mechanism allowing you to to bring those memories out of you know where they're kind of living in this constant present because that's the thing with ptsd it's like you haven't shifted those traumatic experiences from the present into the past. So you're living in this constant fight or flight state. And so I was able to make those things help move those things into the past. And now I can, when I think about those traumatic events, I'm thinking about something that happened to me a few years ago, not something that I'm living in right now. And it's made a huge difference for your family. You were really isolated. You were Oh, they have their they have their dad back. Yeah. Wow, and and you have five children. So, what what were their age ranges during mm-hmm. the time that you were withdrawing, and and then when did the shift occur? So, you know, the, I would say the the worst part of the PTSD was about two years ago. I left the cult about eight years ago. So, if it, it, it was like six years of this post traumatic stress disorder kind of developing and manifesting. And my kids right now are six to uh, 16. That's the age range. So, you know, it would have been kind of four to 14 when I was really at the worst part of this PTSD. So it was two years ago that you found these um, therapies so beneficial in in giving you your life back. Um, What was the impact of the cult on your family? Did you? Sounds like you were um, raising some of these kids in that environment for a time. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So my my daughter, you know, the one who has got involved with uh, you know gender ideology and identifies as transgender, she was there for the first eight years of her life. Mm. She's she's the oldest. Yes. And so coming around to how you started using psychedelics to help you deal with your daughter's crisis. Um, you had found them so beneficial with your own PTSD. And then when your daughter presented with rapid onset gender dysphoria, it sounds like you felt like you needed to sort of break out the big guns, so to speak. Um, tell, tell us about <laughs> that journey. I, I read the story that you wrote and shared with me about um about that psychedelic experience where you went in sort of praying for your daughter. 
Um, but, but fill our listeners in. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I think for any of the parents who are dealing with this, you can, I'm sure you can relate to just how challenging it can be. And, you know, I found myself getting pretty angry about the situation, um, feeling angry about, you know, wherever you turn that this ideology was rearing its head and, um, really feeling like, uh, instead of giving my daughter the love that she needed and the understanding that she needed, I was focusing a little too much on, on the, you know, the philosophical problems with gender ideology and stuff like that. And, and I just needed this kind of deep reset. So, um, I went with some friends who are also very experienced with psychedelics and we found, a you know, kind of a deep location in the, in the woods, um, to, to, to have a psilocybin journey together. And so, um, I took about, I want to say roughly two, two and a half grams of psilocybin, which is a, it's a decent amount. Like, you know, if you talk about amount of, of psychedelics, like five grams of psilocybin is considered a heroic dose where you have a full ego disillusion kind of experience. Um, then two and a half grams is much more moderate, but still quite significant. And, you know, we, you know, with any psychedelic session and for, for the listeners who are new to psychedelics, like it's really, really important that you have uh, a good intention going into the journey. This is called, this is part of what's called set. There's kind of two key elements to psychedelics and their use. It's called set and setting. So your set is your mindset, your intention. Why are you doing this? Um, what are you hoping to get out of it? Uh, what is the environment that you're in? Uh, sorry, that that's getting into setting. Setting is what environment are you in? Who are you doing it with? Um, you got to be really careful, right? Like if you're if if you're with the you know the wrong people, then you're taking psychedelics. You can have a really terrible experience. If your mindset is bad going into it, where like say you're already kind of paranoid about something, you you can have a terrible experience. So you have to you do have to be careful, um, but you know, all three of us were quite experienced. Um, we set our intentions out really clearly. And my intention for this was to figure out, not, not just figure out, but to understand how can I, how can I kind of really at, at once let go uh, and, and, and let go of my daughter in the sense that she needs to individuate this part of, part of this whole identity that she's going through is it's her search for individuation. She needs to find herself, figure out who she is. How can I let her do that and not try to, you know, have her become who I want her to become? But so there's a letting go that I have to do as a parent. And at the same time, um, you know, how can I release some of this anger and this frustration about the, 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 the painfulness of this whole situation? So that was my intention going into it. Um, we took the medicine. Uh, I sat in meditation for a while. I was sitting in this beautiful, on this rock and, you know, in this beautiful uh, stream in the woods you know, sunlight's coming in through the trees. It was just an idyllic kind of setting. And then, you know, the medicine came on and it was just this incredible experience of, uh, you know, just, I guess you could call it power. It's like, it, 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 it's like your, your energy is running through your body. And then I found a place to kind of be alone. I took a little bit of a walk. I stayed within eyeshot and earshot of my friends. We all agreed beforehand that we would, you know, kind of stay within uh, visual distance of each other so we could make sure everybody was safe. And then um, 
you know, I just really started going into this deep experience where I felt the power of, you know, what I would describe as Mother Earth. And I and, and when I talk about this, I'm not I'm not talking about this in a um in a kind of woo-woo kind of way. I'm not trying to, you know, um in, imbue the earth with some kind of spirit, you know, or something like that. If, if, if people want to take it that way or believe that way, that's fine. For me, it was just more this presence of the powerful feminine and, and, you know, the, the words that came to me, uh, through, through the power of, of earth was don't hurt yourself. Don't hurt yourself. And I, that, those were the words that came to me to tell my daughter really simple, you know, and, and then I cried, you know, I really let out a lot of the, the anger and, and sadness about the situation. Um, I, I felt I had kind of visions of her ancestors, her grandparents, especially grandmothers, you know, like the, the, the presence of, of motherhood and how important that was. And then, and then I had this whole vision of, of DNA where I saw the world from the perspective of the double helix, where I was projecting myself as the double helix through space and time realizing that mothers and fathers male and female this ancient biological division is not arbitrary and that it's it's uh in a sense it, it it's what we are and it's what we are as as dna based creatures and and it, it's it's not just this flexible thing it's it's a uh, it's essential for us as for our survival and it was just kind of this deep vision and then i kind of came out of all of that and rejoined my friends and 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 shared with them you know some of my fears about that you know this kind of medical industrial complex that wants to just you know cut my kid apart and how scary that was and and just kind of released this this uh tension and then kind of coming out of the journey um you know i i i was i you know, I went home, I reconnected, I connected with my daughter and it was much cleaner connection. It's almost like, you know, you could think about cleaning the electrical connection on a plug, you know, getting all that corrosion off. And now, now the current moves smoothly. And I was able to say to her, honey, don't hurt yourself. I want to give you that message. I love you. Don't hurt yourself. I understand why you're doing this. Don't hurt yourself. And so that, that was kind of a, a summary of, of that particular journey. How are you sleeping? Sleep is a foundation of mental and physical health, equally important to nutrition and exercise, yet it's often the first thing to go during times of stress. Good sleep can help alleviate depression and anxiety symptoms, maintain a healthy weight and metabolism, protect your heart, and even reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. Yet still, a third of Americans struggle with sleep, and temperature is one of the main reasons. Before I got an eight sleep, I was already an expert in sleep hygiene and practiced what I preached to my clients, but I would still wake up overheated in the middle of the night and unable to fall back asleep for one or two hours. Adjusting the air temperature and blankets was not enough. The mattress itself was keeping me hot. But now I'm sleeping soundly through the night and waking up refreshed thanks to my eight sleep pod pro cover. The Pod Pro Cover by 8Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner 
based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. If you'd like to be more patient with your children, more emotionally stable with your partner, a fitter athlete, or more efficient at work, take it from me, a mental health professional. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being and the lives of everyone you touch. Go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout to start sleeping cool this summer with up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And yes, to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the UK, select countries in the EU, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. Wow, that's so beautiful. And it brings up so much. Um, this message, don't hurt yourself, mm-hmm. reminds me of the conversation I had with Kat Cadenson on a previous episode. We talked about her process of detransition and, and reclaiming her voice as a singer after it was damaged by testosterone. And she also found that mindfulness practice played a pivotal role in her healing and awakening process. And she received sort of a similar message, if you will, through mindfulness meditation from what she also described as sort of a maternal energy that she connected to in herself. That was, it was this loving and accepting Mm -hmm. energy that sort of looked at her with sadness, like it do whatever you want, but it makes me sad to to see you hurt yourself was kind of the message that she got as I remember it. I mean, go listen to that episode to hear it in her words, but it's, it's so interesting to hear that coming through different people's experiences of um, looking for spirituality and healing and guidance through this, this crisis that has consumed so much of our society. And you had that from the parent's perspective. Um, And this vision of DNA is so interesting. I, I was trying to imagine it in my mind as I was listening to you speak and thinking about how um, when the Mm. sperm and egg come together, you know, each is bringing its own piece of the DNA and together they link up to form this beautiful spiral that is at the foundation of, of what makes us human. Um, And, and I love the intentions you went into with this, right? Because um, when, when you listen to different people's psychedelic experiences Hmm. and what makes them positive or negative overall, like you said, set and setting plays a big role. And um, if you go into a psychedelic experience trying to control something that ultimately is not yours to control, that is sort of a recipe for either having a difficult experience or having, you know, some very profound learning around that, right? Being the psychedelics can uh, reflect to you your own kind of human ego and, and the limits of control. So you went into this like so many parents that I hear with this sense of, um, actually the way you described at the very beginning was that you needed a deep reset because you were caught up worrying about gender ideology rather than giving your daughter the love that she needs. And so let me just work with that part for a moment, because I hear this from so Mm. many parents that I work with on this issue where I, the way I think of it is like gender ideology is like this black hole. It has this incredible gravitational pull. Anything that comes near it will get um, wrapped up in it. And so for young adults who are caught up 
and gender ideology, it becomes trans everything, right? Everything is about being queer or being trans. And it's like they lose sight of who they were beforehand. They're trying to reject their past self. They call it a dead name. Um, and and they only want to surround themselves with reminders of this um, group that they've aligned themselves with. And for parents, if they're not careful, they can end up in their own black hole. It's like a parallel black hole where gender touches everything in your life too. And so just as your kid is obsessed with everything trans, you are also obsessed with everything trans, except you're doing it from the perspective of how do I save my kid so that they're not uh, permanently damaged? And so a lot of parents actually miss out on the most precious moments for healing and reconnection with your kid because you're so worried um, and and you're thinking of it from this really intellectual place of how everything they're saying doesn't make sense and how you can refute it and how you can argue with it that you you kind of lose the heart and soul of the connection in your relationship and the connection is what actually has the power to to heal right so you went into this not trying to control but recognizing there are limits to what you can control limits to the power of your intellect to solve this problem um, and instead with that. A noble intention, the sort of intention that psychedelics tend to work better with, which is how do I let go of something I'm having a really hard time with because of my strong feelings? Um, how do I release these overwhelming emotions that I quite understandably feel? Anger, frustration, helplessness. Um, and, and then there's this kind of free-falling trust, right? This idea that if I let go just at the very moment that I want to hold on and control the most, maybe something good will come of that. Maybe there will be something I can uh, achieve through releasing my attachment to the outcome um, that I that I can't achieve in any other way. Um, and it, from what I'm gathering from your story so far, and obviously I haven't heard all of it, it sounds like your daughter is still um, wrapped up in this, but that you were still able to find the value in uh, reconnecting with her and in entrusting your heart to lead that connection. Um, how does that reflection, as I'm hearing you, how does that land with you? Yeah, you you said a lot there, and and I really think that um, we're on the same wavelength here. You know, you you um, it, there's definitely a risk to over intellectualizing. It's so important to um, give your child a, uh, a, a, it's almost like a second childhood is kind of what we're doing. Um, we are not trying to just focus on the gender stuff. We are trying to have as many positive experiences as possible, um, really focusing on the root. And I think, I think, um, in our case, the root is fairly clear. Um, our daughter suffered from trauma. She suffered in a religious cult, and she is trying to find a way to deal with that trauma. And, you know, creating a trans identity for herself is a way to package all of the pain and say, that is, that was the old me, and now there's the new me. And so, you know, for uh, and she she's even aware of that. She's said as much to us to her therapist. She knows why she's doing it. It doesn't mean she wants to stop, but she is aware of that. So for us, it was like, how can we deal with the root here? 
and and so you know it, a lot of that has been um trying to create as many positive experiences as possible but also i took her on a big trip back to the location where this cult was uh where our old home was we had to travel quite a quite a long distance to to visit the place that where this happened and you know she she had we had a little ceremony there where she let go of of some of these painful memories that were difficult for her as well um and and she reconnected with the with you know the land and places she remembered from her childhood growing up in this situation so we did that you know in conjunction with her therapist so trying to deal with the root cause and not just focus on the ideological side is is a big part of what we're doing here um trying to connect with her as much as possible you know we we bought for example we bought ducks you know so now she's taking care of these ducks and 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 it's giving you know she's doing that instead of going on the internet for example um we brought an archery set so we're we're spending time as a family doing archery and you know just how can we embrace her as much as possible and and give her positive experiences so that she can kind of come back to come back to and, and herself i guess would be the way to w- the way to put it rather than just like going straight for the jugular and attacking the ideology itself I think that's so important. And although this is an audio only episode, <laughs> I, I smiled when you talked about the ducks. Um, that was a sweet image. Um, but you know, I, I recommend things like this to parents all the time for a few reasons. One is that you cannot control, um, and that you also don't want to get up sucked up into that black hole where you lose sight of what's important. You want to keep modeling for your family all the different things that life can be about that are meaningful and worthwhile. You want experiences that give your kids a broader sense of the world mm. and an opportunity to build competence at things like um, taking care of animals and archery because all of this um, this formation of a false self, this alter ego that kids construct uh, in this case, I mean, Kids have always constructed alter egos, but now it's an alter ego of an opposite sex identity or some other gender identity. It serves a purpose to cover up for a self that feels weak and incapable of facing the world as they know it, right? So if you can give kids experiences that build a real sense of competence without um, locking in an identity too early, that's really healing, right? You can build competence through... um, through taking care of animals and shooting bows and arrows and other real visceral skills um, without having to attach yourself prematurely to, I am a duck farmer, I am an archer, um, right? And that's what they're doing with the gender identity is they're locking in an identity too early. We call that identity foreclosure in psychology. And another reason why these sorts of activities are so beneficial ROGD kids is that given the fact that you ultimately can't control how long they're in this cult, how deep down the rabbit hole they go, how far they push medicalization, at least you're giving them something to come back to, even if they do go down that path, right? So when I've um, worked with detransitioners, whether in a clinical context or just through talking to them on my podcast or in letter exchanges or other ways that I've connected with detransitioners, one theme that I've heard Mm. is uh, having something to come back to 
that was yours all along. So um, it could be an art form. It usually is some kind of uh, form of creative expression um, that the person you know, practiced mastery during that time in their life. And for some people, maybe it's too linked with their old community or their old sense of self. And when they detransition or desist, they feel like they have to um, reject or walk away from that chapter of their life. But more often what I hear is that um, it helps them know that they were still them all along. Right. So let's say, let's say it's um, taking care of ducks, right? The example that you gave. Um, if, if they loved taking care of ducks when, when they were a, a, a he, him, um, and they still love taking care of ducks now that they're desisting or detransitioning and accepting their biological sex, then they don't have to, th they don't have to do the whole thing all over again of trying to throw away your past self, right? They can separate the baby from the bathwater. And so then there is a consistent sense of self that's been there all along. I was always female. You know, even if heaven forbid, in some cases, you know, even if I'm stuck with now this facial hair or these mastectomy scars or whatever it is that I'm stuck with um, that I that I don't like, now I'm having this whole other experience of so-called gender dysphoria with. At least there are some parts of me that have always been there. And when you're disoriented, it's so helpful to have you know at least a few things that you can hold on to, whether it's that you formed an identity around that, um, which I said, you know, you don't have to lock in that identity, or at least it's just a stable interest over time or some positive memories to look back on so that you don't feel completely disoriented, especially given the fact that when people do detransition or desist, it's more likely to be, you know, a few years down the line at a time in life, maybe in their 20s or 30s, where it would be helpful to at least have some elements of a foundation of a stable identity. Whereas this time during adolescence, when they are going through this phase of identifying as the opposite sex is a time that um, it's it's normal to experiment. So I hope that makes sense. And I hope that any ROGD parents who are listening can find some value from this, right? That it's so important not to lose yourself in this, just like you don't want your kid to lose themselves. And even if you can't control uh, ultimately, how your child identifies or what they choose to do to their body, um, all is not lost. If you can give them some meaningful, positive experiences to look back on and some elements of forming a healthy sense of identity and competence, you're doing something and it might prevent some of the worst harm from occurring. Yeah, that's that's very encouraging. I definitely have questions around and, I, and when I say I have questions, I have questions about my you know, my own approach to all of this, where I, I know that the things that we're doing are super positive and super helpful. And I, and I really am encouraged by the things that you're saying that, you know, you're almost giving them a bank account that they can draw from uh, when they get older, um, you know, no matter how far down the path they decide to go. Um, I think I do question you know, the level to which I should engage with the ideology and, and confront it, I guess. Um, I've, I've uh, instinctively kind of shied away from it because of the backfire effect where, you know, I remember when I was a kid and I was a teenager and I, and I got involved with uh, actually Orthodox Christianity, which 
you know, to, to get to, to share a little bit more background, the cult that we were involved with was a cult that was kind of hiding in the Orthodox Christian church. So it was a very odd situation. And, and I remember when I was converting to Orthodoxy as a teenager, uh, the church that I was converting to was kind of culty. And my parents were, uh, were, were really frightened. They thought I was joining a cult. And in many ways, they were right. And I can tell you, there is very little they could have done short, short of a full-on intervention, you know, where, where somebody like gets kidnapped and deprogrammed. There's, there's probably nothing they could have done or said to me that would have stopped uh, me from believing the things that I wanted to believe or joining the community that I wanted to join. And it had a profound effect on my life. Uh, there are things obviously that were negative, you know, because I ended up joining an abusive cult. Uh, there were things that were positive. You can't, you can't really untangle it all. I've learned a lot, but the point here is that, you know, I, there, there is little that I think I could say to her right now that would ever change her mind. But at the same time, it's like, I, I, I struggle with, well, maybe I should say more and be more transparent about what I actually think so that I'm at least saying it and that at least she maybe can come back to some of those things. But it, it just, it always feels like it's running this huge risk of alienation when the most important thing right now is connection. Anyway, all that to share that, that I, you know, I really do struggle with what, what to talk intellectually with her about. Um, but, but in terms of not getting sucked into my own gender black hole where everything becomes about that, you know, that's really where the mindfulness practice and, you know, the occasional psychedelic, you know, journey has been very helpful. These questions that you raised come up several times a week for me in conversation, uh, because since I've been out there talking about these issues for the last couple of years, a significant portion of the people who come to me for therapy are ROGD parents. On top of that, I have a consulting practice for people who um, either aren't looking for therapy or they're not here in Oregon. So I can't provide therapy for them, but I do have my doors open to people who just want to pick my brain um, and get my honest opinion on what's going on in their situation. So I, I talk to parents like you all the time who have these very questions. And I feel like maybe we could, I don't know, not, not that this is role-playing, that's not how I want to frame it, but that this is like a little sample of what one of those conversations mm -hmm. might look like because so many families are navigating this and asking those exact questions that you are, um, Alan. So I think it's actually really good that you're, you're going there and let's go there a little bit. This question, should I say more, right? And, and navigating that sort of tightrope walk, that balance where, you're having moments of connection with your kid. That is the most important thing. Um, and, you know, some of the best books on the subject, like Hold On to Your Kids and The Collapse of Parenting, um, which are in my bookshop, by the way. You can support the show by uh, getting books through Amazon affiliate links at sometherapist.com slash bookshop. I have a whole recommended reading list there, uh, recommended reading for ROGD parents right after the section of authors who've been featured on the show. So check out those books on that reading list. But um, yeah, some of the best books um, that parents are using to support themselves through this time are more about um, that connection, right? The From an attachment lens and also a lens of uh, appropriate degrees of authoritativeness in the parent-child relationship. So um, at the same time, uh, it feels like there's this ticking time bomb. 
your kid is, you know, however many years from turning 18, or maybe they're over 18 already. Um, and they're, they're on a path that, you know, leads toward medicalization, or maybe they're already starting to medicalize. So there is a sense of urgency that parents have about feeling like they need to kind of pull their kid out of it and get them to see from, from your own perspective. And yet here you have this dual perspective on this, Alan, because you were that kid once. You were a young adult in a cult and and there was nothing anyone could have done to get you out of it. So um, let's talk about this. So these questions that come up for you when you're thinking about should you tackle the issue more directly, um, walk us through whatever you're willing to share, of course, without compromising your family's privacy, but what are what are some of those moments of tension like for you? What are the choices that you find yourself facing with regard to what to say or not say? Yeah, you know, like it, it, there's there's so many instances when this can come up, right? Like for example, we've we've set very strict rules around the internet, and um, part of part of my daughter's descent into the ROGD or ROGD cult has been via the internet you know she she had a friend who identified as transgender and that that's what kind of got her into it unbeknownst to us she had watched something probably probably thousands of youtube videos we didn't know this was going on as soon as we found out we pulled the plug on it but it was too late and that was all it took and she from that point on has identified as a boy um so we restrict the internet and there's a lot of arguments around that where, you know, she's upset that we've taken the internet away and, and she's like, why are you doing this? And it's like, well, there's just a lot of really dangerous ideologies out there, a lot of kind of online cults and we've seen, and it's, it's also not good for brain development, blah, blah, blah. But I'm not directly saying, well, it's because, you know, you're, you're just going to get sucked into more, you know, tr uh, trans activists videos. So you know, that that's an area where I haven't been direct with her. And it's a question, you know, should we directly say that this is why? Um, so that that's one example. Uh, I can say something where, you know, w one thing that we did do together is we listened to the witch trials of JK Rowling. And I think that was good for her to hear. Um, for, for your audience members who haven't heard it, you know, JK Rowling, author of Harry Potter, she got in a lot of she got a lot of backlash uh, because she was posting things on uh, Twitter about, uh, you know, her her perspective on gender ideology, which you know she's she's very very critical of what's going on. And anyway, there's a great podcast series, The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling, where it really gets into the whole history of gender ideology and and J.K. Rowling's perspective. So. You know, I think that was a really good thing that we did together that was actually touching on this subject, um, but kind of from a third party where J.K. Rowling was talking about what her thoughts about it. And then, you know, my daughter and I could discuss it a little bit, but without, you know, I wasn't I wasn't coming down too hard on it, but at least we could have a conversation about it. I think that was a positive thing to do. Um, but, you know, actually getting into the nitty gritty of how how gender ideology is an online cult and kind of explaining its dynamics and all of that. Like I haven't really gone there because uh, of my concern that it's just going to alienate her. Um, so maybe I'll just pause there. But you have not 
shared your opinion that this is a cult? I have not. I haven't directly shared it. And how much have you talked about the cult that you were involved in together as a family? We've talked about that extensively. She's very well aware of it. Hmm, just thinking. Yeah, I, I mean, this it, to to add more color to that, like she she has seen me go through my whole healing process from post traumatic stress disorder. We've talked extensively about the abuse that went on. Um, she had her own mild experiences of abuse while we were there. Thankfully, they were mild. There were other kids who got a lot more uh, difficult experiences happening to them. So, you know, she she's she's aware of cults and cult dynamics. Um, and and yet, you know, I haven't gone as far to draw the direct connection yet with, you know, what's happening with with gender ideology. And given the fact that you, um, while you were in the throes of PTSD, you were frankly, a pretty bad parent for a while there, right? Um, yes. And, and you've been open with me about that just now on this podcast. So what have your conversations with your daughter and the rest of your family been like about about that? I, I imagine there's been some expressions of remorse and attempts to repair the damage from those times. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, m- most of it is just just trying to you know, I've really turned over a new leaf in many ways. So it's, it's like, like I said, it's like the family, it's like my kids had their dad back. Um, and in terms of, of repair, you know, I, I've certainly explained to them that, you know, I, I, I don't want to parent the way that I was before. And, um, you know, I've, and I, I've been open with my daughter, you know, she's 15 going on 16 in just a couple of weeks here. You know, I've been very open with her that I've, went through psychedelic therapy, you know, and explained how all of that worked so she could understand, um, you know, kind of the transformation. Um, so yeah, like she's got a pretty clear, clear idea of the path that, that I've been on. So have you, um, my thoughts are forming and sometimes they start off as sort of this nebulous creative cloud and in therapy, I, there's a lot of room to kind of move slowly, but on the podcast, I, uh, yeah. I hope that our yeah. listeners aren't, aren't going to be too bored by how, how long it's going to take me to put my thoughts together on this. But, um, earlier you said the root of this is clear. Our daughter suffered from trauma and a religious cult and is trying to find a way to deal with that trauma and you said creating a trans identity is a way to package all of that pain and say that was the old me, now there's the new me. And you said that she's aware she's doing this. So have yep. you ever responded to that by saying, no, sweetie, that was the old me. That was Those were my mistakes. I got us involved in that cult. I'm responsible for the abuse that you endured in our cult and at my own hands when I was unwell. Have you ever tried to kind of swallow the poison like that? I've not, I don't, I haven't articulated it that way with her and I would have no opposition to doing that. I mean, that sounds, it, it, that, that definitely sounds like a, an interesting approach. As a therapist, I've gotten an up close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. 
Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being, like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar. And it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving your cells the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. Well, I'll, I'll share my thought process on that a little bit more. It's about how we internalize things as children and, and we all do, but you know, girls internalize more than boys. Um, and it's funny how much girls are behaving exactly like teenage girls when they're claiming to be boys, because they're demonstrating all the things that girls have always done, just calling themselves boys in the process. So internalizing, right. Um, you can see that she was just a young, innocent child, but for her at 15 going on 16, she still feels the shame of that being her fault. Um, and so she's, it seems like maybe she's trying to cut off and reject that part of her that she's labeled as bad. Um, and, and, you know, it takes people years of therapy and, and growing up and, stepping into their own role as parents in their 30s oftentimes before they're really able to look back and see, oh, I was really just an innocent child. I didn't deserve any of that. How was I supposed to know? I shouldn't have felt like that was my fault or like I that made me a bad person. But at her age, she's not nearly there yet, right? So that would be something that I would suspect is maybe going on is that she's overly identified with or internalized um, some of the bad things that went on um, as a result, both of direct participation in the cult growing up in that environment and of what what it did to you and your the impact of your PTSD on the family. And so this sort of trans identification is an attempt to cut off this part of her that's bad, the feminine vulnerability, um, the the growing up as a girl, right? Have, having been a girl. Um, and and for many of these girls, I'm not sure if this is your daughter, but the masculine alter ego creates a false sense of confidence and protection um, from the the harms and evils of the world. And so for many girls, that's about being objectified or sexually harassed, for example. Um, but it could really be any number of things. And in in my work with ROGD parents, I've I've heard reports of kids coming out 
with their heads kind of spinning to integrate how it shifts their whole sense of self and their narrative about them. When parents take responsibility for the fact that that was their mistake. And so, for example, um, in cases where a kid identified as the opposite sex from early on and their parent got, let's say, bad advice and affirmed them. And then as puberty is getting closer, the parent's trying to walk it back because they realize if they continue down this path, it's a path of lifelong medicalization. So the kid is saying, I've always known this about myself ever since I was whatever age. The parent steps in and says, no, I did that to you. I made a mistake. I got the wrong advice. You were a four-year-old. You didn't know. You thought that being a girl meant, you know, liking princesses and being a boy meant playing with trucks. And so based on your four-year-old understanding of what makes us girls and boys, you said this about yourself. And I, like an idiot, um, believed you. And I didn't hold the appropriate boundaries and tell you what actually makes you a girl or a boy. This is my fault. Right. And when the parent does that, it leaves the kids head spinning, but in a way that I think is ultimately productive of change because there's there's a huge change in perspective that needs to happen for the kid, which is that they're not the authority figure. And they especially weren't the authority figure when they were four years old. And they're not an authority figure now that they're 16 either. Um, they are young and vulnerable and they weren't protected or they weren't given the appropriate guidance. And when the parent takes responsibility for that, it kind of puts the kid back in their place, which is you're a child. You don't know yourself. You don't have it all figured out. It's not your job to. It's And it's not your job to self-diagnose. It's not your job to tell doctors that you need the so-called life-saving care that's really like you don't know where it's going to lead you, right? So it kind of reestablishes parental authority. And then the kid has to kind of rethink their whole narrative. And this is also occurring at a time when the kid is, like you were saying earlier, trying to individuate, trying to develop a separate identity from their parents. So if you as the parent take responsibility, no, it's my fault that you were hurt and confused and that you kind of stumbled into, because I didn't protect you from the internet too, you know, that you stumbled into this idea, but I'm, I'm here to set the record straight. This is my mistake and I'm going to fix it. And um, that can really kind of readjust things for the kid. Um, so how does that land with you? Yeah. Uh, thanks for, thanks for sharing all that. So I think, I think that's really great, um, advice and I, I hope it helps, uh, everybody who's listening or all the parents that are listening that are struggling with similar issues. Okay. So you've expressed an interest in mindfulness and psychedelics and the connections between them. Um, before we resume that conversation, I'm, I'm still curious for, more of your observations about the connections between the cult that you were in and the cult that you see your daughter as being in. Um, you've said that you have not chosen to voice your opinion that she's in a cult, but do you feel like your own experience in a cult has shifted or informed um, your perceptions witnessing your daughter get involved in gender ideology? Yeah, that's this is a great question because this, you know, uh, the gender ideology phenomenon that's going on right now is really something new from a historical perspective. So let, let me, maybe it would help to talk a little bit about what a cult is and, and then kind of expand from there. So a cult, the definition that I really like the best is a high control community. 
And there's a spectrum, right? Like on one side of that spectrum, you might have something like Jonestown, where everybody commits suicide together. And on the other side of that spectrum, you might have like a multi-level marketing scam, you know, where you're, you're being controlled in a, in a kind of business environment. So along that spectrum of control, you know, religious communities will fall somewhere. You know, even a traditional, you know, bona fide church is going to have a certain level of control that it exerts over its members. And when, when taken to an extreme, it really becomes extremely detrimental to the lives of the people involved. And so that's the kind of cult we were in where, you know, everything was controlled, uh, everything from what, you know, on, honestly, what you eat, because there are certain days where there was strict fasting that was imposed um, to when you have sex with your partner, um, you know, and, 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 and it's hard for people who haven't been in a situation like this to understand uh, how anybody could submit to that level of control. The other thing about the cult that we were involved with is that it was led by a very charismatic authority figure and, and religious authority figure. So, you know, that, and that's very different from, you know, if we want to start now comparing and contrasting this kind of traditional cult where you've got a charismatic leader controlling the lives of, of his or her followers, um, you know, that, that's kind of the, I, you know, the, the image of a cult that most people probably have. But when you look at what's going on with, with uh, gender ideology, it's, it's different, right? Because it is, it's distributed, first of all. There's not, it's decentralized. There is no single leader or mastermind behind the whole thing. Um, gender ideology is something that has kind of evolved. And, uh, you know, I kind of like to look at this from the perspective of memetics. And for, you know, for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with this idea, like memetics is this idea that ideas themselves are uh, mutating and reproducing and evolving in the substrate of human culture. And that's kind of what's happening here, where so, uh, gender ideology has evolved to uh, fit some really specific uh, eco ecological niches, or much uh, e ecological niches uh, in uh, in our culture. Where, for example, just just the way the internet itself works, it it's it's a medium where these kind of ideas can spread very rapidly. Then you look at uh, the the kind of psychological needs of teenagers. There's a huge uh, gaping void there, ready to absorb anything that's going to give them answers or or make them feel like they have an identity. Uh, in a in a fairly rootless uh, culture, which is kind of like the one we're, that we're living in, then you know you look at you know there, there's a political sphere where there's a vacuum here as well. Where uh, if you think about you know all of the the strides that have been made for um, gay rights, which I think are great, the problem is that uh, the, the the trans rights have have hitched a ride right alongside that, so that in many people's minds, they're one and the same thing when in fact they're not because there's this whole medical aspect. Then you add in this, you know, the, the, the part of this where um, the medical industry, there's so much money to be made. So when I, when I, when I look at this from a, a memetics perspective, the ideology has evolved to fit all of these niches perfectly. And so it's this new phenomenon where it's not like a traditional cult where there's one kind of leader. It's not like a traditional religion where it's offering a clear idea of salvation, though there is 
hidden in it this idea of salvation where if you just uh take the medicine so to speak if you if you go down this this role of transis- transition all of your problems are going to get solved so it shares a lot of elements with traditional cults and traditional religions and at the same time i i really feel that this is a new phenomenon and and it shares uh it, and it's got characteristics that we've never seen before all combined into into one uh social phenomenon that was brilliant i have nothing to add to that <laughs> thank you <laughs> <laughs> that's terrifying though right because because you know you can see you can also see connections to fascism right like you know right now this this just came up the other day where uh google was basically showing a business like put put these flags or icons in your business website to make it more lgbtq friendly right now that's just a suggestion to show fealty to the movement but in a few years if you don't do it then <laughs> then your you know your your silence is going to be looked at as uh uh as as opposing it and 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 you're going to be looked at as a political enemy that that could happen right so there's a political side to this too which is quite scary so anyway i think we're dealing with a new phenomenon and i really think that you know people who are social scientists and more qualified to 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 really think through all of this than i am and draw historical comparisons should get on with it because there's there's really something here let's talk about mindfulness and psychedelics you've said that they've both been helpful to you and that you see a lot of similarities between the two so what are those similarities yeah, well, I want to I want to actually say you know say something that you, or reflect something that you brought up earlier. You said you know parents shouldn't lose themselves or they should avoid losing themselves in uh, gender ideology in you know once they're you know when they're trying to deal with these situations with their kids. And I thought that was a really interesting expression because so much of mindfulness is actually recognizing the uh, contingent or almost illusory nature of what we refer to as the self. Um, and, and so it's funny, like y- you have to lose yourself in order not to lose yourself in, in these kind of problems. Uh, and what I'm, what, what I'm, when I, we talk about losing the sense of self or seeing through the illusory nature of self in mindfulness, uh, it, this, this is a, it's, it's a really profound, um, uh, recognition of the way things actually are, and and what I mean by that is that uh, you know if you, if you if you think about if you think about uh, you know maybe maybe I'll, I'll take the the approach of how how I think people generally approach mindfulness. They they think of it like oh this is like a self help kind of thing, right? Like I'm gonna sit, I'm gonna focus on my breath, I'm gonna calm down, I'm gonna relax. And and all of that's true, right? Like you can get a lot of self-help like that just through basic uh, breathing or or basic mindfulness practices. But the the reality is is that it's this is a lot deeper than all of that. It's mindfulness is about seeing the ego for what it is, which is as a, a complex of thoughts that arise in the mind, and that the the true self quote unquote is is something other than that and so um i i actually 
joke about this that that I want my pronouns to be it it you know I I identify as pure consciousness like that's that's my real identity the the this the the ego constructions that I make are uh, contingent they serve purposes and but but they're not what or who I really am and so mindfulness is a way of coming into contact on a more and more regular basis with what one truly is and and then carrying that into everyday life so so that it's not just when you're when you're sitting in meditation that you have the 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 experience of 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 simply being loving awareness but that it's just happening all the time and it's just what you are um i'll I'll, maybe i'll pause there so you you know you can ask questions or, or i can clarify things Well, the way you describe your understanding of mindfulness sounds potentially very healing. I think there's a direction that one can go with that that gets kind of dissociated. Um, but I also hear a lot of liberation in that. And I'm thinking about how to help detransitioners and the um, the cycles that a lot of them get caught in where people who are no longer identifying as the opposite sex, no longer believe in the tenets of gender ideology, then want to, let's say, pass as their own sex again and are finding it difficult. So, you know, women who've had mastectomies and been on testosterone, maybe they have a receding hairline, maybe they have to shave, their voice is deep. And and so they're struggling with this whole new type of what you could call gender dysphoria. And many seek so-called reversal surgeries, although we know that true reversal isn't possible because if a woman has lost her breasts, you know, breast implants are n- not going to have the same function as mammary glands, for example. But there are some things that can be done that might alleviate some of the distress associated with, you know, looking like the opposite sex when you're no longer um, thinking that way. And and especially for those who feel like their time spent in gender ideology was a cult for them. Um but I'm thinking about how many detransitioners end up in this kind of trap where they're sort of repeating the same cycles that they were doing while they were identified as trans because they were always in pursuit of the next level of intervention, the next level of um, surgery, hormones, passing, affirmation, and so on. And they became established as medical patients from a young age where they could have been healthy. And then when they're detransitioning, then then they go through this like, well, now I need this surgery and I need that body modification because I'm trying to look like a woman again. And and it can be expensive and invasive and re-traumatizing to the body. And so the reason I'm bringing all this up is because some of the people who seem to be sort of the furthest along in their healing process, I don't, I don't know. I don't mean that in a, in a way to compare, but the people who are um, finding a lot of compassion for themselves are from my perspective, sort of following this path of radical self-acceptance. And I'm trying to say this with as much humility as possible because I can't know what it's like to, um, to be in that position um, and have had those changes to my body. But I've seen some detransitioners just sort of give up on trying to pass as anything, Um, give up on, you know, this kind of relentless push to modify their their bodies and their appearances instead just coming from it 
from a place of radical self-acceptance. Like this is my body exactly as it is. It's been through these things. I am, I'm sorry. I love myself and I'm just going to work on accepting myself exactly as I am in the body that I have, even though it doesn't look the way it looked before, even though it doesn't look the way most people of my sex look, that sort of radical self-acceptance. And I've seen that for some people um, coupled with this kind of mindfulness attitude that you describe. And that's the connection that I see, right? That um, that there is this illusory nature of self and seeing the ego for what it really is. You said a complex of thoughts that arise in the mind, which is not the true self. So it's this like, I am not any of these constructs. I am not what I look like. Yes, I am my body, um, but I'm I'm also more than that. So it seems to me like um, mindfulness and and for some detransitioners, they've reported that that is connected to uh, um, psychedelics as well, um, really helps with this like radical self-acceptance and coming home to the body without desiring more, more essentially like harm and invasion to the body just to make it superficially appear a certain way. Yeah, I, all of that resonates like, a big part of mindfulness is just recognizing that that now is enough meaning what's happening right now is enough what uh you know when you're when you're sitting in meditation and you're, you're you you might be focusing on the feelings that are arising in the body you might be focusing on the breath you might in in, in what what i like to practice is zogchen meditation and this is uh what is kind of the at the heart of uh the waking up app which Sam Harris puts out, which I strongly encourage people to, to try. Um, in Zogchen, it's more of a diffuse uh, attention where you're where you're paying attention to everything that's arising and passing away. And a big part of that is recognizing that I don't need more than what's happening right now. And I don't need to change anything. And so that kind of attitude, when cultivated, can directly impact how you think about your life and your body, uh, that, yeah, I don't need to change anything. You know, this is now is enough. This is enough. And I think the a connection with psychedelics, and this is where, you know, this, this can get a little bit, uh, th- some of these ideas may be new to, a, uh, to, to your listeners. So maybe, you know, strap in your seatbelt a little bit and, uh, just, just kind of go along for the ride for a minute. You know, with psychedelics, one of the things that you recognize pretty quickly is that the world that you see is a construction. Your body, in a sense, it, it, it's a construction of the mind, right? Like y- y- you, you, don't, you don't see three-dimensional space, for example. You see, a, uh, you know, your, your retina is providing a lot of pulsating nerve signals to your brain, uh, representing different colors and shadows. Your brain constructs uh, the, 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 this, the world that you live in. In the same way, it actually constructs your uh, your image of your body, where you know you you your brain creates a self model that's then embedded in the world model that it's constructing. These are things that your mind is constructing, and when you take psychedelics and you watch that construction dissolve, change, transform, you realize, oh, okay, this is just a construction, and and part of part of this is that you know taking it a level deeper the things that you think about yourself are also constructions and if you can change those things 
you can you you can you can come to a state of peace with what is and and you know psychedelics can kind of facilitate uh that understanding um and it doesn't even need to be necessarily like an ongoing use right like uh, I, I like what alan watts says you know he said once it, once you get the message you, you can hang up the phone and 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 i think that's there, there's a lot of nuance that i could add to that because i think there are times when people you know really may need to take medicines again you know to to work through deeper levels of ptsd to get more uh neurogenesis or or neuroplasticity but in general, from a, from a philosophical perspective, like once you realize that like you're constructing the world, you're constructing your image of yourself, you're, um, you, you know, you, you can then say, what, what presuppositions am I bringing to this? What am I projecting onto others? What am I even, you know, what am I projecting onto my, my, my view of the world that are coloring it? And how can I let those things go? And I think psychedelics can help open that up for people and then met and then mindfulness or meditation practice can help uh kind of cement it uh <laughs> um in, in on an ongoing basis I, I don't know if all of that made sense it kind of, i know i took a little bit of a a, a deeper dive into into e even how how the how the brain and how the mind work but I'll, maybe i'll just pause there i think that's great that's what you're here for to bring your own unique perspective on these issues and i'm so glad that we've gotten to explore this unique confluence of of your experiences in cults and and raising a daughter who's currently, um, you know, believing that she's a boy as a way of sort of compartmentalizing her pain, um, and then the insights that you've gained from psychedelics, mindfulness, trauma recovery. I think it's all wonderful. Um, so, in our last few minutes here, is there any um, sort of cherry that you want to put on top of all this, or um, anything that we forgot to get to? Yeah, I, I really just want to encourage encourage parents who are struggling um, that, you know, and this is I'm, I'm speaking to myself just as much as I'm speaking to all of all of them who are listening, you know, that that the most important thing is our own groundedness and our own um, uh, peace, because if, if we're not at peace, then the we're, we're not going to be able to help um the people around us and our kids find a place of peace. So um, think about, you know, what, what kind of practices you might want to adopt to, to help facilitate that. And I know with mindfulness, there's, there's often a big stumbling block for people where, you know, especially folks coming from a religious background can look at meditation and say, ah, oh, this is, this is like Eastern religion. And, and, you know, this, I, I, you know, I, I don't need this. I have Jesus. I can just pray. And and I want and to, I, and I think I want to help people um, or, or encourage people to, to really have an open mind that like mindfulness is not, it, it, it doesn't require any dogmatic belief, right? Like you, you don't need to, you don't, you don't actually need to believe anything to try uh, sitting with the breath, for example, or to try some of the other mindfulness exercises and just see what happens. So there's not, there's not, it's not a requirement to believe anything about it. It's simply a practice that you try. And I know many Christians who have combined mindfulness practices uh, successfully in their life alongside of their religious beliefs with, with absolutely no conflict. 
And I also see it from the other side that a lot of atheists are like, oh, this, this mindfulness stuff is just another kind of religion. And I don't, I don't want to have any religion. I just want to be rational. Again, again, it's the same thing. You don't need to believe something to, to try uh, a mindfulness practice out where, um, and, and just see, see if it's benefiting you. So if you're, if you're a parent that's struggling with, uh, you know, a kid suffering from gender dysphoria or, or any of the other struggles that a parent might have, I, I, I can't encourage you enough to, to give, give mindfulness practice a try. You know, it really can be a life changing, uh, practice. I think that's excellent encouragement and it's coming from a place of integrity as someone who has, um, worked with this practice and found so much benefit in it yourself. So, um, you wrote an article on Pitt, Parents with Inconvenient Truths About Trans. Um, I also interviewed some parents from Pitt recently, so you can find uh, that episode, Parents with Inconvenient Truths About Trans. Um, they have a, a new book that just came out of the same name. Um, so I will link to the article that you wrote about your psychedelic experience on Pitt in the show notes. Are there any other resources that you would encourage people to check out? or anywhere people can find your work? Yeah, so I would encourage people uh, who are interested in getting involved with mindfulness to give the Waking Up app a try. There's lots of apps out there. This is the one that I use, and it's you know been, like I said, pretty transformative. Um, I would also encourage people who are interested in learning more about psychedelics to look at the work that's been done by MAPS. That's M-A-P-S. Uh, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Science. And that's run by uh, a fantastic uh, person named Rick Doblin. And and I think there's just a lot of great resources, you know, about uh, uh, psychedelic medicine. You know, you can also check out um, How to Change Your Mind. Uh, it's a book by Michael Pollan. It's also a, um, a Netflix documentary. It's a great introduction. Um, and you know, I think the, many, many cities now have, you know, psychedelic, uh, psychedelic communities or psychedelic societies where you, you can connect with people to learn more. Um, so it's becoming much more accepted uh, in the culture. It's really, it's really, there, there's a, a huge resurgence uh, in, in psychedelics that are happening. And, and I would encourage people who feel called to uh, explore that realm for you know whether it's for healing or personal growth uh you know to do so safely and and <laughs> with guidance and not just just don't do it on your own if you're if you're um uh if, if you're new to it and and obviously like um you know I, I i recognize that you can't endorse something like that on your show per se i'm just speaking speaking as an anonymous guest on your show that you know if if it's that there can be a tremendous amount of healing uh, and benefit when used in the right way, but it's not a panacea. So it's, it's gotta be used in the right container. Alan, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your unusual story. I, I really, I think a lot of listeners will find parts of themselves here and I, I hope that they found some benefit in this as well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This has been a great opportunity. I hope you enjoyed this episode of you must be some kind of therapist podcast. To check out my book recommendations, articles, wellness products, guest episodes on other podcasts, consulting services, and lots more, visit sometherapist.com. 
or follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you'd like to go deeper, join my community at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. Members can dialogue with other listeners, post questions for upcoming podcast guests to respond to, or ask questions for me to respond to in exclusive members-only Q&A live streams. To learn more about the gender crisis, watch our film, No Way Back, The Reality of Gender-Affirming Care, at nowaybackfilm.com. Special thanks to my producers, Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix, and to Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. If you appreciate this podcast and want more people to find it, kindly take a moment to rate, review, like, comment, and share on your platforms of choice. Of course, just because I am some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.